No, I'm not ready. Don't start yet. <laughs> We've already started. No. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> We've already started, dear. Are you going to make me sing a song? Baby, when I <laughs> met you, there was peace unknown. I set out to get you with a fine tooth comb. I was soft inside. There was something going on. You do something to me that I can't explain, holds me closer, and I feel no pain. Every beat of my heart, we got something going on. <sighs> Tender love is blind, it requires dedication. All this love we feel needs no conversation. We ride it together. Aha. Making love with each other. Uh-huh. Here we go. Islands in the stream. That is what we are. No one in between. How can we be wrong? Sail away with me to another world. We can rely on each other. Uh-huh. <laughs> you really sat through that. <laughs> I mean, everybody did. <laughs> sorry about that i just I, so i'm in the middle of a divorce and uh my three-year-old daughter who is fucking hysterical by the way she like put on her sunglasses and was like put on frozen <laughs> when we started driving she's like frozen mama and i was like i don't want to listen to reggae she's like frozen and i was like i'm her bitch so i was like okay <laughs> but then i snuck that song on and i was like maybe i can get her groove into islands in the stream and then as it was playing i started to have an emotional reaction to it <laughs> cruising down the highway in my 2007 vw white rabbit i was present <laughs> how you do it <laughs> um I got nothing. <laughs> okay, so then I'm going to ride this pony straight to hell. Um, <laughs> I have a postcard, a postcard. This is the subject for conversation. It's really like, what do you think of this? I've had a postcard hanging in uh, on every wall of everywhere that I've lived for the last just about decade. And it says inhibition is a nail in the head. And I have it as a reminder to myself that people are going to try to, I think I have less, if we were to look at a brain scan of me, I suspect that whatever the gatekeepers are to like self-regulation and like filtering and social mores and stuff would be like a little weaker than like the average bird. And Something, someone out to lunch up there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like somebody's just like, no, no, we're good. Let them in, let them in. Let him in. Kind of like the police at the Capitol. <laughs> um, you had to take it there. I did. So I might, but, but my thought is, you know, sometimes, and I've made it pretty far without getting, you know, censured or uh, punished in some way. Um, but I keep the sign up inhibition is a nail in the head because I realize that we live and operate in a world in which if my communication isn't 
that I, I find myself constantly up against forces that would rather me and all of us that say things, uh, not say things. So I keep that sign up because every day I think it's really important to lean in to um, whatever bizarreness or strangeness or weirdness or broken part uh, that feels vulnerable in your personality or is chastised in your personality or makes you feel shame in your anything like that. Uh, and to really just like protect it, like protect mm. it. Like I, I fiercely protect my um, lack of inhibition, <laughs> you know, like, because I think it's a, it's a tool. And um, rather than feeling shame about it, I am trying really hard to protect it in, in a way that I can still make a living, you know, which brings me to capitalism. Because <laughs> we've never talked about that before. No, so. yeah, but I, I was never really awake for those conversations. I feel like I'm, I'm here for it now. Okay, fair. So living with a chronic illness is still new to me. You know, taking injections of immune suppressants and like figuring out meds and diet and I don't know I should try yoga or some shit and meditation they say that's really good <laughs> don't you love that I know have you tried meditation let me teach you this mindfulness technique <laughs> the number of first appointments with therapists that I've had that have like sat through listening to what I do for a living have started with, well, there's this mindfulness exercise that we could do that would be. Yeah. Fuck off. You're like, <laughs> it's yeah. It's the equivalent of. No, I, I, I don't want to use a simile. It's, it's bad. It's, it's really, it's. So I'm just part of my uh, illness. I don't know what to call it and it doesn't feel right. Part of whatever this is, is, um, is like just deep fatigue after doing really, really easy shit. For example, taking a shower. It used to be like, you know, just a thing I did. And now when I do it, I have to sit down afterwards and like collect myself. I have to, like, this is when I'm flaring or when I'm not. Yeah. You know, which again, I'm still new to this. So if anybody's listening that has experience with this and you, you know, it's different in everybody, but I just want to acknowledge I am, I am very new and it's humbling to be like knocked down for the count from basic stuff. I, I usually get my groceries delivered because of uh, COVID and, and all this shit. And somebody gave me a gift certificate, uh, but I, the other day, I really had to go in the store. So I went in. And um, when I got home, I, I'm not exaggerating. I know I'm prone to exaggeration, but I had a nap for two and a half hours. And thankfully, so did Frankie, you know. But as somebody that used to work a lot, I used to pull 70, 80-hour weeks um, you know, the last year and a half, I've really had to contend with rest. And um, mm -hmm. uh, I, 
you know, there's this book called When the Body Says No, and Gabor Mate is basically like, when you don't listen to your body, it will eventually make you listen. And I could go down a rabbit hole with mind-body connection. I think it's really interesting. But I, you know, earlier today, after I had done some work and had some basic tasks completed, I laid down and was sitting there with my thoughts because, you know, you can lay down and turn on a TV and at least not have to like think about the fact that you have to lay down or you could read a book. There's wonderful things to be done, but I didn't have any of those. And I just sort of felt into how I was feeling as I laid down. And it was amazing how internalized my ableism is. I laid there and felt like, do you really feel this way? Do you really have to lay down? You know, you know, is this really necessary? Are you depressed? Were you what your, is this? your internal power yoga teacher at that point? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Was like, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get out there. And then there was the other part of it. It was like, okay, let's try. And then I was like, <gasps> nope. You know, like, uh, I run a fever, like when a flare comes and it is very like, you can't see it from the outside. You just might think I look a little tired, but like my face gets really red. My joints all get red. It's, I know it's happening, but I have this internalized power yoga teacher that is saying you can override it, get up, get up and go do. And then I've got this body that's saying, please, God, just lay down. And it brings me to tears. Like, because I, I, I literally have pulled myself up by my bootstraps time and time again in my life to get sober or to get a job or to lose weight or to get out of a relationship that wasn't, you know, whatever. Like I just am used to powering through and now I cannot. And I have to sit with the feelings of inadequacy and, and lack of value because I cannot produce I cannot teach as many classes. I cannot demo. I cannot do my as much work as I was doing for my marketing company. Like, I, and they're being so supportive. All my employers. Let me. Be, I, I just absolutely been ex- and wonderful. Um, but I feel like I, in order for me to have value and to take up space and to be able to breathe, I have to earn my keep. And I feel really acutely now, like how harmful that kind of thinking is and how is my worth really based on how much I earn and how much I do Mm -hmm. and how much I make? Is that, is that it? Is that it? And then I, you know, I look at my daughter and I think, you know, she deserves, you know, a mom who can do X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z. And then I'm like, no, she just, she just needs a mom that loves her. And, you know, the, the internal gaslighting is so deep rooted in my brain. Yeah. That, uh, you know, I've, and my practice has taken a hard shift into yoga nidra and meditation because that's what I can do. It's, to be honest, I, I really struggle with that. But it's almost as if I've, I've just been stripped of all the tools I had to be. And it's not always going to be like this. I get that. Like 
I could feel, you know, the, the most fucked up thing is, is like tomorrow I could wake up and be like totally normal. Mm -hmm. Like you don't know. Yeah. So I'm doing a lot of work around feeling like I still belong to the planet. I still belong to my friends and family and to the Mm -hmm. communities I'm involved with. I am still lovable and worthwhile, even if I don't earn people as much money as I could. Mm -hmm. And while that might sound really obvious... Oh, until, it, it, it's worth saying <laughs> until yeah and until it's taken away you know like i because i would have said of course that's the case before this i would have absolutely said of course that's the case but not really like it's not until it's like just taken away it's taken off the table mm-hmm. that you know you have to sit with internalized ableism um So what can you do? I don't know. We have a new president. It's true. We do. There was a there was a press conference. <laughs> That was the point where where the the relief shifted into just like pure humor. Everyone was like freaking out. I was like, oh my God, there's going to be a White House press conference again. (laughs) Where someone someone stood up (laughs) and actually talked to the press. I can't remember what network I was watching, but one of the, one of the, whoever their like White House correspondent was, was like, it was basically like, y'all, there's lit- there was literally dust collecting on the podium. <laughs> so messed up. Um, and honestly, I do, I do believe that if you support Trump on any level, you're a racist. Mm-hmm. There was this really fascinating <laughs> moment on, um, uh, I think it was on The Daily, like it was either the day before inauguration day of inauguration. I can't remember which one, but it was definitely last week. And um, there was this woman, the conservative woman who was talking about um, describing like walking down the street in her hometown and feeling terrified about who had, because she, she couldn't decide like as she was walking down the street and interacting with people, which by the way, who are you interacting with in the middle of a pandemic? Um, and like, so terrified that like, oh, well maybe that person voted for Biden or maybe that person voted for Biden and like felt t- fear for the first time. And part of me was like, welcome to the rest of our lives. Like, <laughs> like what was what was she afraid of? I, mean, I don't know. Be... She might get like, she might get fair treatment in the workplace. <laughs> <laughs> and to be fair, like I still, if I need to, can pass as a white man. Um, this is not my preferred way to walk through, <laughs> through life. Uh, <laughs> doesn't, doesn't really feel congruent with who, how I feel about myself, but like the fact that 
like I was like wow people are experiencing that for the first time and completely blissfully unaware that anybody that holds any like inch of a marginalized identity has felt that way that like that's the norm on to, to varying degrees depending on where where someone lives versus what their what what their identities uh are and like it was just so i was just like holy shit <laughs> it, it, yeah that is particularly bizarre especially like first of all yes i think it, it, it doesn't make sense though, because I still can't wrap my head around what she conceivably would be afraid of. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, it was fascinating. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I just am, there's always like, even if you like remove it from, from Trump for a second, like there's always this weird dissonance of like, as much as you can criticize the Democrats for, and there's plenty you can criticize the Democrats for, um, they actually want to govern. <laughs> like they fundamentally want to do their job. <laughs> Whereas other people seem to fundamentally, like they, they got into government to not govern. Yeah, as like a, um, you know, as like a Tea Party sort of act yeah. of internal rebellion against, you know, states' rights kind of thing. I can. But it's just, yeah, I don't know, it was just fucking fascinating. Um, and, and I have to say that I was surprised the relief that was present when he said, so help me God, and the oath was taken like like there was a distinct moment of like oh okay <laughs> this actually happened <laughs> there's a lot of a lot of work to do but there i was not expecting to feel relief in any way shape or form i was expecting to just be like okay that's you know another day in this fucked up year and then some um but there was a sense of relief and then there was you know of course this is how the cycle of things go there's the relief and then there's the social media about the relief and then you feel like okay you don't really have to like the, like the celebration is then there's like the critiques of the people having the relief and then the critique of the critique and then the critique of the critique of the critique and then it just yep. and then the deep and abiding amnesia <laughs> about what actually happened <laughs> yes yeah or whatever it is whatever is in the news cycle yeah, just yeah. like we've got the american we have a two-week you know uh ideas uh bad news tragedies everything's got a like a two-week half-life yeah um, um, so that'll be interesting to see. Um, I saw, um, some interesting conversations online about 
um, whether or not to unfriend people that are of different political beliefs and uh that's such like a weird thing to debate like like i don't know there's a part of me that like whenever that whenever that question comes up i'm like who who cares (laughs) social media like who cares friend them unfriend them like if you're if your entire diet of information is coming from social media. I don't care who you friend or unfriend it. It's it's not. <laughs> oh, Ryan. No. People connect with relatives and that is the new high school reunion and social media is uh easily to make fun of. But I'm not saying it's diminish but it really is the new kitchen table that people debate with their drunk uncle at. <laughs> Which is fascinating, because why not just, I don't know, like, if... Especially during COVID, when we literally don't have the kitchen table to... Yeah. But it's like, like, I'm not saying don't do it, or... Like, if I could be entirely off of social media, if that would if I didn't worry that that would be damaging to the thing that I do for a living, then like I would be, I would exit completely. But um, at least right now, that's like, that's a part of our jobs. Like how fucked up is it that like, that's a part of our jobs to be on social media. So my niece is amazing. Her name's Maggie and um, she's, She's like, she'll always be two years old to me, but she's, oh my God, is she 12 or 13? I'm a terrible aunt. Anyway, she's super smart. And I was talking to her about TikTok. <laughs> and I was like, I, I was like, you're, cause I send her things on Instagram. I like send, you know, and she very rarely responds. And she's like, one day she said, she's like, old people kind of ruined Instagram. And she was talking about me, Ryan, me. I can't um, wait to be an aunt. <laughs> so we have ruined, well, Facebook we knew was ruined. Yes. But it's still like there. And Instagram is ruined. So now we all have to be on fucking TikTok. I refuse. I'm on there and nothing has sucked more time away from my life faster than TikTok. It's a beautiful, strange place. <laughs> I trust that that the friends in certain group texts, if there are things that I need to see on TikTok, that they will send me the links to to that. I, I have friends that I trust. Yeah, curate or, my TikTok experience. Basically, inst- being on it. <laughs> Instagram is the curated TikTok because people will push their best TikToks onto Instagram. Yes. So I kind of, you know, you can get by with that. One thing I will say though is being the arrogant fuck that I am, I um, didn't realize how many, TikTok has opened my eyes to one thing. Uh, people in their 20s and younger are really fucking talented. There's a lot of talent out there. Like I just keep seeing like comedians and makeup artists and dancers and artists and like, damn, like you can just see how richly talented humans 
can be. And so many of them, you know, and, and I, it made me reflect on the idea of success in art and success in a craft. And I was like, so many of these people will not make a living doing whatever this is. They will share it on TikTok and then they will go off and, you know, be a, a nurse's aide, whatever. Nothing wrong with that, but, but like sort of this idea of having access to creative economy and creative ideas and that we as children are asked what we want to be when we grow up and it's like really a question about how do we want to make money instead of yeah. like asking what we'd like to do with our time and um you know the holy grail is to do what you love and get paid for it but I don't know that that's the holy grail. Theoretically, I, I, yeah, yeah, it's no, been pushed down our throat that that's, that, that the, that's yeah. the thing. Um, because I've been reflecting a lot recently that as much as I am deeply interested in, and constantly fascinated by uh by yoga practice, I do feel more and more that the act of having to teach it as, as a primary, not even, I don't even do it as the sort of sole aspect of my income, but as the, any significant portion of my income, um, I'm reaching the point where it feels like that's beginning to dis, de, detract is where I'm looking for from, um, from the time that I want to be putting into practice because there's really no way if if for me anyway if I'm engaged in teaching to have practice be solely about taking care of myself and self-inquiry and self-reflection because if it, if it is about that it starts to resemble something that you could not put in the form that's been dictated by the yoga culture. Um, partially because of the yoga culture, but partially because like, you re just reach a point where there's so much consideration into how do you take, okay, so this is, the, this is, this is what I'm doing in practice, this is what I'm exploring. And then the pedagogical path back to something that you could actually teach in 75 minutes is <laughs> gets longer Something that you can shove into a happy meal. Yep. <laughs> um, and and the fatigue of just being involved in this. It's very important here to distinguish between yoga and the like capitalistic culture of of the yoga industry quote unquote um it's just a lot um and and certainly accelerated by 2020 but um i don't think this would i don't think absent the pandemic i would be in a much different place it might not feel quite as 
uh, quite as strong, but like it's uh, it's like Brian. I don't ever I don't ever reflect on like what do I want to be doing and the what comes back at me is not I want to teach yoga. What comes back at me is like I want to practice and be generally helpful to human beings in whatever way I can. And that's different than like, I want to teach 18 vinyasa classes a week <laughs> and, and be, be, uh, and have a following. <gasps> ding, 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 ding. We've got a winner. Um, do you like how I, do you like how I got there? I got I did. To the thing. I got to the thing we wanted to talk about. You you got us there. Um, Long meandering road through the countryside, <laughs> we've arrived through the lavender fields of Alsace Lorraine. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even think those two things are a thing. Uh, yeah, following. I I, I, I want to put a pin in that because you said something else that was super interesting. Uh, about teaching. What the fuck was it? <laughs> I'm distracted. I'm scared and I'll end up woods. I was thinking about the idea of a construct of the work week as we understand it now. It's a 40-hour work week being something that was designed with the understanding that one member of the household would stay at home and wash clothes and cook and take care of children and take care of all this shit while one person did 40 hours of labor outside the home so mm. we've kept the idea of 40 hours a week of labor but made no additional accommodations for people that aren't in a traditional, um, uh, you know, uh, nuclear setup. So, you know, is it time for us to unionize everyone and everything everywhere and then have a work week look more like 30 hours a week, maybe 25 what would that look like? I, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I don't, I've seen over the years articles of different companies experimenting with 30 hour work weeks, experimenting with um, like a four day week where folks are staggered appropriately so that there's enough overlap that communication can happen well. Like I've, I've seen, uh, you know, over the years, different articles thinking about the, talking about that. Um, I, I'm all for all of it. Um, I think it's interesting that it's true. I think there's like a unionization question, which is happening in a lot of a lot of places, even outside of yoga. Um, and then there's a uh, there's the big question mark of UBI, um, universal basic income, and the various proposals around that and. Um, the, I think the tricky thing is that the thing that I have a hard time wrapping my head around is 
I actually, in some ways, think it's easier. It would be easier to say in a group of people wanting to start a business, let's say 30 hours a week is a full-time, we expect people who are full-time at the company to make a living wage and work 30 hours a week. How do we build something from there? Then to try and take any organization that's still operating on this more typical model and like work it back, that there's a lot of inertia um, there's a, like a lot of forward momentum into keeping the labor price and the labor set up as it is. Um, and it, it almost seems like part of me always goes back to, well, I just, we just got to start from scratch. And then the other part is like, well, I have no money, so I can't be the person starting anything from scratch. So... <laughs> because um, because i've done that before and <laughs> it doesn't work as a single person to do that mm-hmm uh-huh mm-hmm uh-huh mm-hmm and then i think about school and i think about like school like kids just, school yes school or the whole, con- whole All construct from All start to construct finish. Yeah, like Frankie is, you know, I think next year will be the year that we can apply for preschool and it's a lottery system for free preschool. And essentially, you know, it's like every day of the week for, you know, six or seven or eight hours, you know, the kids running around with other kids and about daycare and I, because, you know, the silver lining of this just absolute monstrosity that we have walked through and are still walking through is that uh, it has become the social norm to work and hear children in the background if you have them and not try to hide them or feel shame. Um, I'll say that that's true. I'm still not 100% there with teaching yoga because I've had some awkward moments. But uh, I, I, I'm it really brought me back to like what feels right and what feels right to me is, and it's different for everybody. I'm not shaming anybody for doing anything. I'm just talking about my experience. It feels right to me to like have my daughter nearby at this age. So I am looking at school and, and really like, you know, up until about like, I don't know, junior high, it's all just like a playpen for them to go to. And so the parents can work a it's childcare. So the parents can work and it's, um, you know, teaching our kids how to sit at a desk and be prepared for the workplace. It's just like, and I know I sound like a, you know, an out there hippie that's about to like drive out into the woods of Alaska and raise kids on my own. Like, but well, aren't you? I am. I am. And I just, I, I am so, I remember and and memory is a fuzzy thing, but I really do remember being in kindergarten and I had this piece of paper, a ditto in front of me with a cartoon giraffe and like the letter G and I had to connect it. And I looked at it and I was like, this is fucking boring. Fucking like, what the fuck? I'm seriously I remember having that thought when there was like homework that involved like the necessity of coloring and just being like 
what the fuck? So the, one of the first times I started to pull a grift was in kindergarten. Cause what I would do is I was like, okay, I'm done, you know, or whatever this boring. And, um, you know, I got up and went to the teacher and said, I have to go to the bathroom. And I would just go and walk around the halls, <laughs> you know, like literally. And then I'd come back and then I'd sit down and there'd be another ditto or something. And I was like, I'm fucking done. Or this is boring or I already know whatever. And, uh, and I'd say to the teacher, Mrs. Freeborn, I wonder if she's still here on this planet. She drove like a crazy nice car. It was like a Ferrari or something. Oh, and it was Mrs. Free- I went up to Mrs. Freeborn the second time and was like, I have to go to the bathroom. And she goes, is it an emergency? And I didn't know what she meant by that. <laughs> I thought she was asking like, do you have to puke? <laughs> and I was like, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I went again. She must have thought I had like terrible bowel issues, but um, I just would leave. I just left and walked around. And this is in kindergarten. I'm, I'm pretty proud of myself, actually, in recalling this. I love this that story. for you. I love that. I, lo- I love it for me, too. Um, <laughs> you know, and part of that is I, the privilege I came from was having um, my mom took education and reading really seriously so i probably had a leg up yeah you know to be fair but if we could just like equip parents single and two parent households to really like get to parent i don't know i just it just all feels so icky and garbage and I really didn't enjoy school very much. I had fun here and there, but what are we doing? And if you are hearing me right now and like, well, it's good for socialization. Okay. Yeah. Maybe for some kids, for some of those alpha kids that have money or look great or don't have any special needs or whatever, then yeah, you probably had a great time. That might've been the highlight of your fucking life. (laughs) congratulations all downhill from high school great work um so mean i'm sorry but like we really should look critically at how we educate teachers and what we're doing in those fucking classrooms yeah and what classrooms are getting the funding and what aren't and it's just it's all so deeply suspect we just slap labels and like think back to like how people spoke about you in kindergarten and first grade and how that carried on. Mm-hmm. So uh, anyways, I, I'm glad I got that off my chest. I think education is important and I'm just cranky. And <laughs> Before you went on that tangent, we're going to talk about following following. So, you know, during a teacher training, somebody once asked me, we were talking about learning students' names. That's what it was, Ryan. (laughs) I'm pulling, I'm pulling my rolling desk right up so that I'm close up to the screen in case you're wondering what that giggle was. Ryan, nobody agrees with me on this. No one. So I have to get up in front of large, you know, teacher training groups and, and continue to say, I don't ask students' names, not my business. 
I will if they introduce themselves to me. Mm-hmm. But all this talk around learning students' names is really about cultivating customers. Yes. It's not and actually about having it's not an it's not an educational conversation. That no. that I mean that's the that's the like that's how it gets introduced, but it's really it's really a customer. Um it's about lead acquisition yes. and loyal brand loyalty and uh and I don't I mean, lots of teachers make the space where they greet every student that comes in the room and learn their names and memorize their names. And that helps them like, you know, and I, I don't like it. It feels vapid and shallow and not real. I can feel it from a thousand miles away when I'm a student and a teacher asks my name. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you don't, don't, don't waste space in your hard drive. <laughs> Like, don't. It's okay. It's okay to want to have a private experience in somebody's publicly taught class. And it's okay to give it to them. Mm -hmm. And it's okay to do the same thing when you're teaching online. Mm -hmm. You know, like I am a warm, friendly person by nature. And I like to think of myself as as loving. Uh, And I also have a finite energy. Mm -hmm. So I am not going to fake a bunch of little energetic exchanges with people because it makes them come back to, no, that is not why they, it's just because what am I trying to do? Make a following? And what is a following? Yeah. Following is something a cult leader has. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, I think it's um, and to me, whenever I hear that, it also it. Um, how do I say this? It equates my, whatever skill that I have, if any, as a teacher to the number of people coming to class. And I find severe fault in that equation because the people for the most part who have taught me the most don't really have followings. (laughs) I mean, some, some have, you know, students who come back again and again and again and again. Um, And uh, you know, they're all successful teachers in the way that they define success for themselves. Um, Some of which looks more like how people think of it. And others of it looks very, for other people, it looks very different. Uh, but even in those, even in situations where the person that I'm learning from has what you might refer to as quote unquote, a following, 
I feel like more of the exchange of learning is happening, has happened in the interpersonal relationship between me and that teacher, not necessarily the group dynamics of being in their class. It's just that, that they happen to prefer to communicate about yoga or about anything for that matter. This is, goes beyond yoga teaching um, in a kind of group setting, but it's in the, it's in the interpersonal interaction um, that of course I, as a student, am initiating because I have questions about things. That's you where- You choose and you initiate, yes. Um, and so it's like, it, it, it's just this difference between I, I don't I don't know that it, it's quite possible that we've entered into a realm in which it is impossible to survive financially as just a yoga teacher without some sort of, you know, constant marketing strategy. Um, and I know people will disagree with, it, with me on that, but it's, it, I keep reflecting on it. It's like, if, if what I'm wanting, and again, this is just about, just for me, if what I'm wanting is to practice, to find relief from practice, to use practice as a modality for self-reflection and inquiry to heal in the context of practice and to challenge myself in the context of practice and every, every possible definition of that word well beyond just physical, then um, I, I'm not sure that being a drop in class yoga teacher is at this point in my life congruent with, with that want. Um, so one of the things I want to point out is, uh, is a simile that comes to mind. And that is what if we were to think about teaching the way we yoga teachers with in the same light, we thought of um, like college professors. Hmm. And, you know, would the, it would probably, if you were in a large classroom of 30 or 40 people and you were not a cohort, but it was a class that you could just come into whenever, you know, if the teacher took the time to get to know everybody's name, wouldn't it feel a little icky? I'd be like, what is this? Aren't we supposed to be talking about like the, the Salem witch trials and it's uh, a <laughs> post-agrarian, like fucking whatever. Um, so I guess for me, I think of it as like non-attachment. Yeah. They're not my students. They're not my following. No. They're people that choose one class at a time to show up or to not show up, whatever. It could be anybody. And my way to respect 
that and to not create any sense of like, oh, I noticed you weren't in class today. Is everything okay? Like, which is a thing, <laughs> which I've witnessed. I've been in classes and even as a teacher, I've been, at, you know, I've been at this for a while now. I can actually say that. And it's true. Um, I remember being in the back of classrooms and the front row is all the cool kids. You know, this is back at like back bay, you know, you got the front row of fucking handstanders and split takers <laughs> that are all good friends and are going to go out drinking afterwards. You take them. And then I've heard, and a teacher will be like, hey, Linda, I haven't seen you in a while. Everything okay? And it puts a student in a spot where they're like, I was taking class with someone else. <gasps> yeah. Heaven no, I've, I mean, I've been in situations where, where in studios where someone has come in to take my class and the teacher who is teaching in the other room of the studio alongside who may, who probably knows the student even better than I do. will go over like, Oh, so good to see you. I'm so glad you're coming to class. And the student will say, Oh, actually I'm going to go to Ryan's class today. And then they get convinced into going and taking somebody else's class. And I like, and I'm, I have it, hundreds of times I have witnessed this, this happen both whether I'm directly involved in the equation or or just a, a bystander to it. And it's just, we've created this world in which there almost has to be this possessiveness for someone to be able to survive, for someone to be able to make ends meet. And I, I don't know... I don't know what the right answer is. I wish I did, but. Okay, so I know what the answer is for me. The answer is for me is I respect students enough to give them space and let them initiate questions and a relationship about yoga. Yeah. That is not me and anybody who's like out there hunting for relationships as a teacher. I think that's worth looking into. Yeah. Also, I also really deeply believe like I'm not for everyone. Yes. And um, if I was trying to be more palatable, I would be going yeah. di in direct opposition for what I believe to be valuable. Well, to nuance that, that like I'm not for everyone thing a little bit more, it's, it's, there is also this distinct, Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Metropolis? <laughs> no. <laughs> candy corn. <laughs> There's a distinct candy corn. Um, <laughs> Miasma. <laughs> Apartheid? Genuflection. <laughs> Anderson Cooper. I don't know. What is it? <laughs> No, but there is there is this um, this ability. Like, I don't often see teachers uh, or even the whole structure of the industry uh, setting folks up for the truth of what it is to study this uh, very sort of like vast topic. Is like 
you're going to learn something from someone and then you're going to realize that you learn the thing that you can learn from that person and then but they know nothing about this other thing that's really interesting to you so you're going to have to go learn that from that and you're going to have to learn that so this idea that you could go and do it is taking the college professor thing even further the college professor doesn't go to undergrad and then teach on the same subject they studied in undergrad with no further research, no further writing, no further scholarship on the... No, then they go deeper with private one-on-one study. And they're not also teaching, like if it's, you know, if you're in your American history class, they're usually not also teaching trig at the college (laughs) level. So like, come, you know, you come, so let's say I'm coming to your class and then I get the thing I want and I really enjoy being in your class. I'll still come, but maybe less because I also want to study with someone else, but I show up because a, it's an enjoyable experience and you're allowed to go to a public class just to have an enjoyable experience, not to learn something. So, but like the, you know, and I, I, I think that because everything is online now, people have a lot more freedom to kind of think about their schedule and how they practice. And I won't be surprised if a lot of people keep practicing from home. And I think, and uh, you know, while I miss in-person community, I do. I think there is something really quietly precious and valuable about the fact that people are getting used to practicing yoga, not in a studio. Yeah, no, I think there's something very, and I I think there's a couple aspects to that. There's the people have now had to create a space within their space to practice. And you've seen that, like, I've seen that over the course of the pandemic, people have like clearly moved (laughs) their physical furniture around such that they could have a, um, have a space to, to practice. And well, I do think that people will always return to physical spaces when we're able to, um, you know, even in the retreat that we, Fez and I did last weekend, um, as it, I, from our perspective, it went smoother than any of the in-person retreats that we had done. Why do you and think I that is? I think there is something about it being in practicing in their own home that it, it's there's no mystery to it it's it's their own space it's their own uh abode they have control over different things and and the other thing that we did which we do all the time when we take individual retreats at our own like i just take a week off to practice or something like that is we gave people this big long gap in the middle of the day. And I could tell when people saw that they were like, Oh, that's kind of weird. But we gave people from like three to six to be like, stay in practice mode, but go do what you need to do. If that's make dinner, that's take a walk. If that's read a book. If that's take a bath. If that's <laughs> like, just. So, and if we turn that lens and, um, that comparative lens and critical lens and look at the studio, all of a sudden um, virtual and at-home practice becomes 
really valuable when you're thinking about folks that are coming into practice for, um, you know, for that are working with, uh, you know, trauma or injury or would benefit from additional agency and a sense of safety, big caveat, if their home, home or is. their space is safe. Yes. Acknowledging that for a lot of people, this is terrible and it's not. Yeah. Um, but like, I have seen many students like have the camera on for the first half and then off for the second because maybe they're going to do something wildly different. And I like to me, I'm like, keep your camera on. I want to see what you're doing. That's cool. Know, you know, know. <laughs> <laughs> like you're because maybe I'm just there as a timekeeper and like a space holder. And like, mm -hmm. w w that's pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, you saw a little bit of that in the training we did over the summer. I think we were both in that day together when I gave them like essentially just like a rough timing. Was like, I'm going to hit the bell at these intervals. And like vaguely, I would suggest that you do some things on your back and then do some things on your front and then do some things on all fours and then do some things standing and lie back down again. <laughs> like you can really just do whatever you want, but I, I will keep time for you. Um, and there is something, um, I mean, I, I love doing that in person, um, but there is something nice about uh, that being able to happen in people's own, own spaces. And uh, I think there are a lot of people predicting a lot of things of what the yoga industry is gonna look like when we get back to normal. And I think everybody's wrong. <laughs> I think what's gonna happen I think there is going to be some people who rush back into the studio okay so I think there are gonna be a couple of things I, I'm gonna venture that say there might be four situations everybody the people who rush back into the studio are like oh thank god thank god I can be back in the studio safely um second people who are rush back to the studio and then realize oh I kind of like this better at home. <laughs> yep. People who like this, uh, who, who still try to sort of stick with the home practice and then decide like, Oh, maybe I'll just kind of bounce back and forth to the studio. Like maybe I'll, I'll just sort of do whatever is most convenient to me. And then the fourth group is like, I am never practicing anywhere. That is not my own physical space ever, <laughs> ever again. Um, and then those people might be like, okay, well, so-and-so is doing a workshop on this topic. So I'm going to come into the studio for, for that. Um, I think it's going to, I think it hopefully, uh, changes the landscape of how this whole industry is being approached. Um, uh, I hope that it continues to empower teachers to come up with different models. Um, I hope that uh, there continue to be, once this is over, uh, small collaborative co-owned spaces where yoga can happen. Um, and I hope that there continue, can continue to be large studios 
I think there's space, there's still going to be space for all of it. Um, and the second that I hear anyone saying, oh, like, it's it's definitely going to be this. I'm like, no, it is, it's going to be everything. It's going to be thriving online programming, thriving big studios again, though that might take a while for that to to become a thing again. Uh, and then I really do think that there will be space for the small small stuff. Two thoughts. One is I think it will mean more yoga in general mm -hmm. because maybe people that normally do two drop-in classes are also picking up something online yeah. or no. And, and the second thought is um, my upper lip is <laughs> legit the shape of a mustache. It's not, I don't have a mustache, nothing wrong with that, but like, look at the shape. Ready? <laughs> this is really great podcasting content. <laughs> look, I'm not going to pretend that I'm good at what I do. <laughs> You're too smart for that. I don't have enough. I'm too old. <laughs> is that the title of the of the podcast? I'm not going to pretend that I'm good at what I do. <laughs> yeah, I like that. That feels right. I'm not. <laughs> um, and then, you know, just as a reminder to my fellow teachers out there, I've been seeing still continued conversations about can you teach without demoing? Uh, you can, you can, you can, you can, you can, you can, even if it's a beginner's class, it's doable. It's doable. And it's the only, it's the only path to longevity. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, you know, I'm here to tell you as somebody working with some physical shit that like, um, uh, I know that there are some people that are visual learners, but I, I push back against that. It's not necessarily valuable for beginners to see you in whatever the shape is, because they are going to think that until they look like you in that shape, they are not in that shape. So use your words. And if you need, if you desperately need to demo something, if you're like in a workshop setting or a new student setting, you can ask multiple people to do it and ask if people could look at their screens. Like there's ways to, I have, you know, privately asked students in class, do you mind if I highlight your video from time to time? Yeah. Um, and I'm just saying that there are ways to do this and for the benefit of your mental and physical wellness and the mental and physical well-being of your students, it's okay. Otherwise, you're performing yoga. I don't care if it's just an occasional demo time to time. That's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. oh, wait, I just have one more thing to say. Where is it? Oh. Is this going to be another visual that nobody can see? <laughs> Kate really doesn't understand this whole podcasting. <laughs> She's... What I'm being shown, dear listener, dear reader. <laughs> <laughs> it's an Elsa doll. That that clearly sings. Um, Don't you know 
And it's her chest. You press her sternum and it glows. And but it's just that one little clip over and over and over again. Into the unknown. <laughs> into the unknown. <laughs> so how do you get an upper register when you're singing? Like when 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 you have it when you're like Adina Menzel. Like if I Well, when well she's belting <laughs> at upper register. Like I just sound like I'm screaming when I do it. <laughs> well, that's what she's doing. <laughs> yeah, but it's a controlled scream. <laughs> yes. It's mind blowing to me, her instrument. So what is it? The uh, upper instrument. glottal, the upper glottal lift of the back part of the mouth. Is that what it's called? Say it with there's me. A, there's a lift. glottal. Glottal. Into the uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can't even like I could only do it out in a field alone, <laughs> or else like I'm just gonna get arrested. Anyways, um, it's been great. <laughs> That will be that'll be upcoming bonus content for Unrolled. <laughs> Trying to sing Frozen. <laughs> Trying to teach yourself how to belt. It, like I've got the body for it, you know. Like I mean, I got the meat. <laughs> Do you know what I'm referencing when I say I got the meat, Jack? Thank God. And dear listener, if you don't know what I'm referring to, it's an episode of 30 Rock where Jenna's mom could only afford to have half a boob job done. And she says to Jack Donaghy, I just need the money to get the other one done. Look, I got the meat. And she shakes her tit and he's like, it feels like a Ziploc bag full of stew. It's one of the best moments on television. That's other bonus content. Kate recaps the episodes. I'm good at podcasting. <laughs> All right. This has devolved real quick. <laughs> it sure has. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Extra bonus content. This, did I already tell you about this? About no. I was I was teaching. And I, I don't remember what class. I think it was a Saturday class a couple of weeks ago. And I had Frankie. And we have a routine. She's usually napping when I teach that class. And the routine got shot to shit, literally. She came running out during class holding her full diaper, butt naked. And I was like, how, how do I do this? So I was like, okay, now take a breath. And I want you to go through that following thing that we just did. I just want you to do that three times in slow motion, connecting to your breath. And then I ran, grabbed her, threw her in the tub. <laughs> Started a tub, threw her in. I'm cleaning her off. She's covered in poop. She's like tried to take the diaper off herself. So it's made its way all over the house. And I, I take a rolling desk into the bathroom with me. Come back on screen from the bathroom. <laughs> And I'm like, hi. <laughs> and you know, like there were people there that were like, you know, regulars and they were like, it's it's fine if we hear her. And then there are people that have never met me. They're like, what is this acid trip? <laughs> um, I don't pretend to be good at my job. <laughs> No, but I did. I got through. I got through and I taught an okay class and Frankie was clean and she's doing great with the potty training now. 
after that one class. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty traumatic for both of us. <laughs> for really everyone involved. <laughs> And well, for those of you that are like, you let people see your naked, your daughter naked while you were teaching. The answer is no. She was off screen. You asshole. You <laughs> asshole. Fuck you. <laughs> she was off screen. <sighs> How is it coming? <laughs> I don't know. What time is it? Have we been at this for like two hours? This really should go under an extra roll. You should don't. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. I just wish it kept going. <laughs>